Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you dialing in, tuning in. Whichever way you listen to the podcast, we appreciate it so much. For those of you who are listening in after the fact, this is a Monday, January 11th podcast. Broadcast. We're excited to have you here with us. It is just, uh, you look at the new year and what the first week brought us in volatility. Oh my gosh, could it have been any wilder start to the new year, but... We're going to be talking all about that on this podcast. In fact, this whole month of January, we're dedicating it to looking at housing forecast, interest rate forecast, every kind of angle on this as we can have. And today we have Logan Motoshami with us who has been very accurate in his housing predictions over the last number of years. I was just listening to his broadcast, radio broadcast on Bloomberg uh, radio and it was outstanding and, and they respect him it's really crazy it's crazy to see how different ones are emerging as the housing experts when it comes to this some of the pundits some of the experts that have been out there the economists have have been missing some of this now of course only the ones that we have on this broadcast are pretty accurate so we'll say that you know yeah we, we select who we have on here pretty carefully but we're really excited to have logan motoshami on in the hot topic segment talking about the housing forecast for 2016 again this broadcast is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals and we're the proud recipient of the progress in lending innovation award thank you to tony garitano and company for that honor also I want to say a special thank you to Arch Mortgage, who recently announced their Raystar program, but more importantly, they recently announced that they have selected us and they're, uh, they want to be on our radio, advertising on our radio program. We're so excited to have them here. They recently announced their Raystar program, which is a risk-based, risk-based program that is a revolutionary, revolutionizing mortgage insurance pricing solution, and it goes well beyond the traditional rate sheets to provide competitive rates and match precisely to your borrower. Check it out. Go out to mi.archcapgroup.com forward slash rate star. Check it out. Looking forward to having a lot more content from them as we get going. We've got conference calls scheduled with them, and we've got a lot of stuff to get them up here, and they're going to be very active in uh, both promoting the radio program as well as uh, we're looking forward to promoting them. Also, we want to say thank you to Velma. They're so good to get the word out. They have the set it. And forget it, auto campaign, or they'll also help you create very customized auto, com- auto I, not auto campaigns, very customized campaigns that go on the fly. You can check it out at Velma.com. V-E-L-M-A stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Great company, great group of folks. It's one of the nation's easiest and most affordable, powerful marketing platforms I've seen. Encourage you to think about it. Go out there, check them out, and get a hold of Brent Emler. Great group. Also, Motivity Solutions, which will has one of the leading business and the, not the one of they are the leading business intelligent technology company in the nation, providing reporting dashboards and scoreboards for the mortgage industry on a real time basis. And we're going to get a KPI of the week here in just a little bit later on in the program. So good to have you with us. I want to say a special thank you also goes out to Alice, Joe, Andy, Paul, Sam, everyone who makes this 
program possible. Really appreciate you and all those you pass on the word about the podcast. The podcast we're well over four hundred thousand listeners now. Crazy, love it. All upcoming NBA conferences, January twenty first, we got the NBA mergers and acquisitions workshop in the Hilton. Phoenix Airport. That's a one-day workshop. We also have another one-day workshop, January 28th, the Whole Loan Trading Workshop at Embassy Suites Hotel in downtown Fort Worth. Check those out as long as, as well as all the other MBA conventions and education. We do this as a public service to alert you to this. Also, I want to alert you to the MBA's Mortgage Action Alliance, MAW as we refer to it as, Mortgage Action Alliance, all you have to do is go on and sign up. Realtor, lender, you don't even have to be a member of the MBA. It's a very powerful uh, tool. <laughs> it's so easy. You put in your address. It selects. It knows exactly, matches up with the right you know, uh, congressman and sends them a letter from you on behalf of that. So it's just a point click and just makes it so easy. So sign up, get it going. Joe Farr, looking over here at your screen and looking again, at least we're starting out the week. Uh, what do you say here? Gosh, last week was something well, else. So at least last week was a good week for mortgage rates. It was volatile, well, it was. but it was a good week for mortgage yeah. rates. I mean, we we were we gained a little bit uh, just about every day, and and on uh, one day, uh, really had a nice day. So, uh, yeah, last week was was good. Uh, this week, you know, we're starting off down a little bit. We're down three thirty seconds, uh, uh, but that's off of the lows, and so we're kind of moving in the right direction today. Uh, early today, we started out lower as the stock market was set to to gain a little bit, uh, which we need to have happen, but uh, hopefully not at the expense of mortgage rates. But uh, so we're down three, uh, low for the day is down six. So uh, the, today's yeah. been a little less volatile than what we saw last week. And so, you know, getting into last week, you said earlier it was a wild week, and, boy, it was a wild wild week. Uh, uh, MBS prices improved 65 basis points on the week. The stock market, I don't know how much they lost. It was like 750, 800 points, I think, uh, uh, last week. So it's a very messy start to the year. The uh, the the price improvement that we saw was uh, again just about every day we had improving prices, but it was anything but a straight line. I mean, it was uh, intraday volatility was uh, was pretty high. We saw price changes just about every day, midday price changes about every day. Um, fortunately, most of them were favorable, but there were a couple unfavorable during last week. Even though again prices improved somewhat every day. So, you know, when you look at what moved rates, it was not your ordinary things. It were geo- geopolitical events and, and uh, of course, overseas economic weaknesses uh, becoming ordinary. But starting on Monday, uh, some of this you're very familiar with, Saudi Arabia, cut dip- diplomatic relations with Iran, uh, caused a bit of uh, concern about those two two powers in the Middle East being at odds, and so uh, created a bit of a flight to safety. Uh, and then also on on Monday, China uh, announced that their manufacturing sector had slowed more than what had been expected. So, stock market sell off. Uh, Dow lost 275 points, and, and MBS prices improved. Uh, not as much as a big drop in the Dow would indicate, but they did improve. Then on Wednesday, the day that we had a really good day in the market was the day that North Korea announced that they had successfully tested their hydrogen bomb. Um, 
I think that's since been uh, uh, challenged, but uh, yeah. at any rate, it caused some more concern in the market. And any time there's concern, you see uh, a shift to safer assets. And so we saw that MBS prices improved and the stock market fell another 250 points. Uh, then uh, the selling of stocks continued on Thursday, uh, 390 points that day. MBS markets were volatile, and both favorable and unfavorable price changes were seen on uh, on Thursday. And then Friday's jobs report came out. You know, and and uh, as good as it was, you would have expected to see MBS prices fall dramatically. And in fact, uh, they didn't. They ended the day up a little bit higher, but uh, 292,000 net new jobs when 200 was expected, November and October revised higher. Uh, Most of the improvement in the jobs, uh, in the net new jobs, and the effect it would have had ordinarily on mortgage rates, was uh, offset somewhat by the fact that there was no wage inflation. You know, jobs, uh, the average hourly earnings for December actually fell a little bit. So I think the market was uh, uh, happy to see very low wage inflation and uh, uh, kind of also probably a little dubious as it relates to the true strength of the economy with all the recent reports coming out. But uh, that jobs report was much better than what people expected. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Pleasant surprise. As long as it doesn't mess yeah. with raising. That's- <laughs> yeah, that's right. The rest of the economic data last week was was uh, generally weaker than what what was expected, but but had very little net effect on mortgage rates. And, and the minutes of the Fed meeting really contained no new information, so they, they too had little effect on the on MBS prices and mortgage rates. So this week the calendar is pretty light until we get to Friday. Yeah, Friday's going to be a big one. Now the Jolts report tomorrow that was is that going to have any surprises in it given there was a surprise in the Friday's jobs report. Well, we don't get a a, a consensus for Jolts, and so it's hard to say if oh, it's I a surprise or not. And, and, and it's so, over a two month uh, you know, period also, isn't it? It's really over a two month. It's period. a delay. It's a, it's delayed a little yeah. bit, so it's uh, November data. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, if it's uh, if it's if it shows very very good strength, I mean, it could be a it could move the market, but not you know, it's not considered near the the report as the the uh, Friday's jobs report was. It's just a, an indication of uh, uh, of strength in the labor market, and we'll see if it uh, shows. That it's strong or weak. Uh, on Wednesday, it's ten-year auction. Then on Friday, uh, really kicks off retail sales, industrial production, PPI, and the Empire State Index. So, uh, lots coming out on Friday. Lots to watch for. Lots of activity and uh, potential for volatility in this year. Uh, Joe is really great, and I want to say a special public thank you for being there when I spoke yesterday or last week. Last Wednesday at the sure. Austin Morgan Bankers Luncheon, it was really fun to be there with you, and I'm just so glad for the partnership we have in this radio program and, and beyond. It's just it's really appreciated, Joe. And folks, if you are not in relationship with Joe Farr and MBS Quote Line, I'm telling you, you're making a mistake. And if you want to learn how to get signed up, here's how. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief word from MBS Quote Line. 
Looking for that competitive edge? MBS QuoteLine delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS QuoteLine, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS QuoteLine today at MBS. MBSQuoteLine.com. MBSQuoteLine.com. 646-716-4972. The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. Oh, it helps to turn on the microphone after that. I'm sipping on coffee during the break. You didn't need anyone to hear that. Well, we've got the, I refer to it as, as, of course, officially it's called the IMFNews.com report, but I also refer to it as the Wit and Wisdom part of the segment of this. Of course, I like to think there's always good wit throughout, but it, Paul leads the leads the charge on this when it comes to that. Paul Malo, uh, good to have you with us. Good to have you here wow. always sharing what's, what's on your website. So, with Quite an introduction. I feel like I just won a Golden Globe Award or something. <laughs> yeah. so we could talk about those if you want, but anyway, it's great to have you here, Fred. I actually didn't see the awards. but uh, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see the new Leonard DiCaprio movie about uh, The Revenant. Yeah. That, that looks really good. But uh, I saw, I did see Star Wars, if you want to talk about movies. which was I love I the big quite short. This, I've... I mean, the the Star Wars is great, but Big Short I've now seen twice. I think I'm going to see it oh, the really? third time. It's just, I love that movie. That is just, I mean, well, part of it is there is, you know, I know all the players that they're talking about at one point in sure. there. They're talking about they have the option one slide deck. I have the slide deck that they have up in the movie. I have it, and Bob Duber sent, sent that to me back in the old, old days. I knew Bob very well. I, knew the, I mean, the New Century folks were literally just down the road from us, just a, you know, a few blocks in, in Irvine, California. So it was, it was crazy that season. You look at that, and it's, it's one of those things where so much, and it's painful to listen to it, but it's one of those things where I'm really grateful that uh, that Michael Lewis wrote the book and, and then they made a movie out of it. So very fascinating. I'm encouraging everyone. Use this opportunity to tell anyone who has not seen the movie, go see it. Excellent stuff. So what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Daily Fourth News. Quarter. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, listen, final ending, um, hotel channel, yeah, Bancroft yeah, article. We, we crunch the Fannie Freddie uh, MBS data every uh, every month or so, and, and, you know, interesting, the retail channel is slipping a little bit, wholesale and correspondent is coming on a little stronger. I would guess some of that is tied to uh, lenders watching their costs, and, you know, there's been cutbacks out there here and there. Some of it's been on the retail side, and, and you know, they're opting instead to use uh, more correspondent and wholesale. And a lot of this boils down to, I should point out, it's the non-banks that are doing it. Commercial banks are still pretty gun-shy for using loan brokers. They're much more comfortable using correspondence. So that's sort of the story there. Uh, number two story, we, we did uh, crunch the new job numbers, which came out on Friday. There is a way to look at the mortgage uh, hiring. Uh, mortgage bankers and brokers are two different sectors. Uh, they each cut about 900 jobs for the month. Uh, these are seasonally adjusted numbers. It's probably not surprising either. There was a slowdown in applications and closings the last part of the year. Servicing jobs are still under pressure and probably will be for the rest of the year because of uh, the cleanup in the industry. The delinquencies are declining and there's less of a need for servicing workers. Uh, but it looks like you know loan officers that have strong ties to um, 
realtors and home builders, those, that group of workers will still be in demand. It'll be interesting to see uh, how this year uh, pans out. We're looking at about probably 1.6 to 1.7 billion for 2015, which just ended. I would guess we're probably going to come in at 1.4, maybe uh, for 2016. But it's it, that's a it's all up for grabs. We'll see how things play out. Depends where rates are, of course, in the economy. Um, an insurance company called American Financial Group. They're in Cincinnati. Uh, I didn't realize yeah. they had a stake in Stonegate. Uh, they filed uh, in early 2015 with the SEC. They own almost 7%. They just upped that stake to almost, uh, well, just over 10%. Uh, interesting. Uh, I, interesting. Stone, Stonegate is, shall we say, has got a lot of challenges ahead, to be kind to them. Their stock's at a 52-week low. They lost money. Their CEO, Jim Cutello, resigned in the summer. Um, there's been rumors they could be up for sale or at least entertaining offers. So that's an interesting company to watch this year. Uh, Fifth IG uh, article, report. Go ahead. Your article on Stonegate says they lost $22.8 million in the third quarter of 15. That is staggering. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know more how it is in mortgage banking. <laughs> rates go down, you got to mark, mark down those MSRs, and you take a big hit. When rates go up, you mark them back up, and you take a gain. Um, so was that mostly MSR right down, you think? I believe it was, going back on memory. Uh, but, you know, they've had production yeah. problems, by the way. I think they're shifting away yeah. from retail, uh, traditional retail, and the third party. Uh, and that's a that's another uh, conversation, uh, maybe a show to do on, yeah. you know, whether, you know, going yeah. getting out of retail is, is not a way to go. I don't know. Uh, there's different, yeah, two schools of thought on that. Fifth IG's got a report. Uh, it's sort of a nitty-gritty, detailed uh, report about, uh, some things the IG found having to do with uh, the, the FHFA failing to properly oversee their single-family mortgage underwriting standards. It's tied to an earlier G- GSE report. It's really for GSE wonks. Uh, you may want to get the IG report or, or read the story in our affiliate newsletter inside the GSEs. Uh, you know, the GSEs have been slowly, you know, uh, loosening underwriting standards. Uh, have they made much of a difference yet? I'm not sure. Uh, there's different opinions on that. Uh, City had an interesting case uh, against Chicago Bancorp on loan buybacks. Chicago was selling them um, whole loans on a correspondent basis. There were some disputes, I think over 11 loans. Uh, Chicago Bancorp didn't want to repurchase those loans. There were some underwriting flaws, and, and City Corp took them to court, and they won. Uh, and it all boils down to the purchase agreement they had with the correspondent. So if you have one of those deals, you better stick to those agreements. Uh, short takes is all about uh, we, we've been spending a lot of time on trade, and I'll just talk about the first story there, really. You know, there's been so much talk about what's going on, the loan delays uh, having to do with trade because of trade errors. We did a lot of reporting last week about correspondence, how some of these big correspondents are kicking loans back because of trade errors. Uh, and so we took a little a different look at the trade problem this week, focusing on the consumer. And we've been hearing that, you know, consumers are getting affected, too, because if there's problems and delays, the consumer has to uh, keep running out those storage lockers and apartments. Um, right. So that means it's costing them, too. Uh, you know, the trade story is pretty fascinating. I've been hearing more complaints about this rule than anything in a long time probably since the yellow comp rule, and uh, lenders are continuing to talk about it both on and off the record, 
And uh, there's all sorts of predictions on what the CPB may do down the road. Uh, maybe they will issue a moratorium for a while, but uh, I'm not saying they're going to do that, but there's some pressure to do that, but we'll see. So that's all the good stuff for today. Good stuff. Excellent. I encourage people to check out the website. Excellent. I read it every morning. Get your update. Appreciate the emailing. Folks, you can have that email directly to your inbox from uh, the folks there at IMF News, Paul and Company. And I encourage you to get it. Check it out at www.imfnews.com. Paul, good to have you with us. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. And um, Thank you. Or just having you back next week. Right. Have a good one. Normally, you bet. Bye bye, Paul. We would normally would be running over to uh, Alice Alvey at this point, but Alice is in a meeting, and unfortunately, she texts us, "I'll meet you later." She and I are flying in together, working together uh, later today, and um, so we'll have to just connect with uh, her next week. So, but a lot of good stuff there. You know, I, I'll just say this: there's so much content that Alice pumps out in her report. I encourage you to go back and double check. Uh, what she says in her previous podcast, previous podcast, uh, download them at iTunes or go to our website. You can listen to them there over your computer. Most everyone seems to love the iTunes approach to it, uh, whether driving, commuting, working out, or whatever. Good to have you with us, everybody. Folks, we're going to be right back after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has three answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. All right, good to have everyone here on the podcast. And another person that I go shares the the wit and the wisdom is Sam Garcia. It's always fun to have Sam with us on the line. And I just realized I said that I hadn't turned on his microphone. There we go. Click that button again. Everything's done online over the on the screen here. It's pretty impressive what Blog Talk has set up and the way they do it. So it's good to have you with us, Sam. Your mic is on and alive and well, my friend. What you got for us today? I, and by the way, before you go there, I want to open up that. I want to say, again, I was looking in some of the research, and the documents are up in your website, Sam. Really good information up there, friend. Kudos to you. And for those listening, you're looking for some data points, data, stats on the industry, check it out, MortgageDaily.com. All right, Sam, now it's your turn. All right. Thanks for having me on, David. Always a pleasure. <laughs> good to have you. Well, we for, I forgot um, to mention two-year mark anniversary. This is a two-year point that you've been on the program. I can't believe how well, time has flown. It seems like it's, it's coming up today. pretty quick here. Yeah, and it really has flown. Gosh, I remember that first dinner you and I sat together, and we really started talking about this. So it's been great to be on the show, and you got a lot of good resources. So I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, we put out our uh, mortgage market index uh, that jumped last week 28% from the week that included New Year's. No big deal since, of course, it was a holiday week before. And that index reflects average per user rate lock volume by clients open close. But uh, what was significant in the report is jumbo business jumped 57% from the previous week. So at least for the first week uh, of the year, jumbo activity picked up quite a bit. Um, we put out a report uh, each quarter. It's the biggest mortgage firms. And uh, we put it out for the third quarter. 
And we show that, uh, of course, in the third quarter, there was a Wells Fargo maintained its standing as the number one originator and the number one servicer, which it's held for quite a while, uh, lost its rival to that spot way back when Countrywide was bought by Bank of America. Uh, what was significant and what has changed uh, was that U.S. Bank bumped Quicken Loans from the number three originator spot that it held in a in the second quarter. So now U.S. Bank is the number three originator. Uh, Flagstar came in. Yeah, yeah. So U.S. Bank really is uh, doing pretty well with mortgages as far as volume goes. Uh, Flagstar, yeah. it was the number eight lender. It jumped from number ten in the second quarter. And uh, one of the interesting uh, act, one of the interesting companies that uh, had some good activity uh, from the second quarter to the third quarter, which most companies saw a decline, was Movement Mortgage, where business surged 46%. So that was the biggest gain a quarter over quarter of any company we tracked, and we've got about the top 25 on there. Uh, in servicing, U.S. Bank climbed to number five, pushing Citigroup down to number six. So uh, they were big. They did have some advancement both in servicing and in originations. Um, on that employment report you were all talking about, um, you know, just despite the fact that we had strong uh, employment across all industries, uh, non-bank mortgage jobs fell to 298,600. It was real estate credit positions that uh, were down because broker jobs actually increased on a month-over-month basis. Now we take that data. And we use, uh, you know, we take our market share data for banks and credit unions and non-banks, right. and we're able to estimate that roughly uh, mortgage employment for all types of entities was around 642,000 people as of November, uh, and that total included an estimated 283,600 jobs at banks, 59,800 positions at credit unions. And then the 298,600 non-bank jobs that was reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, Interactive Mortgage Advisors, which uh, is an agent for selling MSRs, uh, announced that it has about 100. Or I'm sorry, 1.6 billion, uh, or MSRs on 1.6 billion in agency loans for sale. Um, and then uh, an interesting story that kind of got some traction last week was uh, there was a criminal trial that started uh, for the chief of HTFC Corporation, um, and he's accused, along with some other defendants, of uh, mortgage fraud on about $30 million in loans that were, after the fraud was allegedly committed, then the loans were sold on the secondary market and, of course, uh, went into foreclosure. So, uh, And then... Um, you know, the only other thing really that was really significant, we thought last week, was that the Mortgage Bankers Association put out their Mortgage Credit Availability Index, and uh, that dropped in, um, in December to the lowest level it's been since June. Um, though, you know, there were some comments made by the Mortgage Bankers Association that it was uh, the elimination of some low-down payments that are replaced by other down payment, low-down payment programs. And in fact, uh, there actually might have been a little bit of loosening. But uh, the index itself, though, did reach the lowest level since June. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's a short-term thing, and we'll see what the long-term trend winds up being down the road. But uh, those are some of the highlights that we have for this last week. Good, 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 good stuff. I check, encourage people to check out your website at mortgagedaily.com or get a hold of Sam at 214-521-1300. Great resource, excellent amount of data. And as you can hear, he crunches some numbers in there. It's really fascinating. I'm talking about you all the time, sharing your, your website with friends and clients. So appreciate it, Sam, so much. Have a great rest of the time up there. A little chilly here in uh, – 
in beautiful in beautiful Texas, but uh, hopefully it will warm up. But yeah, you know, of course. I yeah, it makes me miss uh, California a little bit, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, you were there, so that does miss a little bit. Anyway, good to have you here with us, and we're going to run over to Andy Shell. In fact, it was Andy Shell that introduced and made me aware of Sam Garcia's website and said, hey, that's a great website. Look at the content on there. So, Andy Shell, good to have you here with us, my friend. Also known or better known, maybe getting better known as the Profit Doctor as a result of your contribution on this program. Andy, good to have you here, friend. Of course, Dave. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And, yeah, the connection with Sam goes back to I think 2007 or so it's been yeah. a long time it was you that it was you that said Dave you got to take a look at some of the data here it's really interesting so appreciate the you're always kind of out there looking at the the what's happening so you like data you're a love anything where you can get your hands on data but I want to talk a little bit about some of the activities Andy you are getting to be really known as the industry expert go-to person when it comes to sorting out financial sorting out and all the complexities on that whether it be hedging loan accounting all the issues related to the mortgage industry and accounting so I'd like to give us a little update and give us some insights of where you see uh, interest and in, in where there's activity where's your heat map where are things heating up for you <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. Well, the, the the topic that seems to be on the mind of the accounting departments, the CPAs who are auditing mortgage companies, who I taught um, last about three weeks ago, taught a group of CPAs about mortgage banking, and, and we'll be teaching a CPA firm actually tomorrow and the next day about all things mortgage. And the thing that's on the mind of the CPA firms is the independent mortgage bankers reluctance to fully embrace and adopt the CFPB mandate for governance. The CFPB calls it a compliance management system. And mortgage bankers think, oh, I need to go buy a new computer. It has nothing to do with a computer. It's about structure of control, starting with the board of directors down through to ensure that all staff are fully complying with all federal regulations. It seems like a wormy thing to do, but it's a requirement from the CFPB so we're helping CPAs implement that, teach their clients about what it means to have that in addition to all things servicing as well, the MSR, the MSR valuation, impairment issues, accounting, call report requirements for MSR impact, the, the risk-based capital impacts for a depository as a result of holding MSRs. So we're doing all these things, teaching people about how to do this. And actually, Dave, I know that you mentioned earlier about the MBA webinar series, and uh, yeah. a couple of the ones that are coming up. And one of the ones that, that uh, I'm going to be teaching starts in about about uh, four weeks or so, and that's the MBA's accounting series. Uh, and that's where we talk all things accounting up through hedging and hedge accounting. So I encourage people to go to the MBA.org website, click on education, and sign up for those webinars we're going to be talking about all things accounting plus CFPB capital impairment risk which means that the consequence of non-compliance with the CFPB mandates including governance compliance management third party management all of these things so it's it'll be fun it's interesting i always enjoy it i've had i had slide decks on my monitors yesterday i know dave i don't quite have the console that you do with six monitors I only got my two big ones, but I had four PowerPoint screens all open at the same time, sorting out about 600 slides 
of content that we'll be delivering oh, uh, to CPAs and the industry over the next uh, several months. So that's taking up well, a lot of my time. Yeah, but your two monitors are each 60-inch monitors that you have to stand in front of. <laughs> <laughs> well, someday Man, I want to have a desk like you, Dave, and have uh, wall-to-wall uh, monitors with uh, all the details. Yeah, that yeah. Who knows what what kind of uh, what is bringing you, you know, as far as electronics though the IFs or RR what's standing like front in front of a microwave all the time so maybe not such a smart idea after all but yeah it's good stuff Andy it's really interesting what you know that you're training and being asked by CPAs and, and everyone think I think they assume their CPA firm knows it all and I think and, and many of them are very sharp and I, and there are certainly some that know it better than others but unfortunately there's a good number of people out there auditing mortgage bankers that really do not have it sorted out and quite frankly giving just some doing not the job that they could do is probably the nicest way to say it and if anyone is trying to figure out how to um learn how to do do a better job, what should they be looking at, and you need to get a hold of Andy Shell. You should have your CFO and your CPA firm contact Andy Shell. That should be your New Year's resolution. So get, them, get a hold of the Profit Doctor. To do so, you can email them at Andy or A. Shell, or you can just email Andy, A-N-D-Y, at mbs-team.com. Is that the preferred way, Andy? You bet you, Dave. Thank you very much. You bet. So good to have you with us. Folks, we've got Logan Motoshami with us talking about the housing predictions. We're going to do so right after this brief break. Whoops, I forgot something just looking up at my notes here. Guess what? We have, it's new enough new, or I'm not in the habit, but we have also Motivity, which is delivering for us the latest KPI of the week. And I see John is on the line here, so I want to follow up with that. John Maniel, Motivity Solutions, what do you have for us today? Hello, thanks very much, David. Always good to be here. And this week's key performance indicator is application to funded cycle time. Uh, since the arrival of TRID, cycle time measurements have obviously come to the forefront, everything from looking at the entire application to funded cycle uh, down to sub-cycles or cycle time between milestones. Everyone wants to compress cycle time, and the beauty of this type of strategic KPI is that it can be tied to operational KPIs that track the tasks or processes within the cycle that contribute to how long or short that cycle is. So operational KPIs can be thought of as the cause, and strategic KPIs are the effect. Uh, and balancing and monitoring these key measurements really can drive performance, and this demonstrates again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, David, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. Good to have you with us, John. Really do appreciate it. Now, without further ado, let's get Logan Motoshami on the line here. I'm really honored to have met Logan. In fact, it's really a testimony to the power of the um, social media because uh, it was through social media that I noticed Logan and his comments. It was uh, his postings, and I started tracking uh, his his housing forecasts and some of the other forecasts. And then I started looking at the analytics he goes into us. Now, Logan is a part of a family business there in, I believe it's Riverside. Am I correct, Logan? Is it Riverside? Uh, Irvine, California. Irvine. Oh, that's right. You moved to Irvine. I, well, I picked up on that from the Bloomberg uh, report that you are uh, news thing. I think she mentioned that. So I was beginning to wonder. So I thought you were in Irvine, my old stomping grounds out there. So, Greetings. It's good to have you with us, Logan. Really appreciate you taking time to be with us. It's good to be here. 
Well, as I started saying, Logan is a loan originator and uh, with the family business, uh, AMC, and uh, has been at it for a good amount of time. He's no stranger to this podcast and program. We love having him here. And it's also really fun, Logan, to see how you have taken on and challenge some of the top economists, some of the you know those that are writing about the industry. And you do a heck of a job. I, I really respect the fact that you challenge them on some of the foundational tenets of their you know what their forecasts are based on, but you do it in such a respectful way. And I think there's a lot of people just bashing and you know attacking and doing that. That's not your style. Very classy. So I think there's two things that I use. I look to you as an example of and encourage others to look at you. And number one is use social media to get your word out. You've done it extremely effectively. The second thing is whenever you're challenging people, do so in a very respectful manner. So you do a great job. Let's uh, let's get into uh, some of the questions and talking about the housing market. And then I'm going to invite Joe and Andy to be part of this interview. So I want to start with where are home prices going? Well, home prices should still have legs to go higher for existing homes because simply we don't have that much inventory over six months nationally, and there's no distressed market being created at this point of the economic cycle. So we are uh, still at the point to where prices should be slowly moving up higher. But until we get six months inventory and uh, at least a job loss recession uh, where we create distressed sales, housing prices still have legs going into 2016. So the, the factor is primary is six months inventory. That's the thing you have circled as the milestone we need to reach. Is that correct? Yes, because pe- people make the mistake of thinking it's just primarily interest rates. You know, when rates went up one one and a quarter percent from the low point of the cycle, home prices still had a, above double digit gains because inventory for uh, price declines is still over six months. We're roughly still at five months now. It's simply too low. To keep the uh, to to have prices decline in any meaningful way, and, and if you talk about a big decline in home prices nationally, you still need distressed sales, fresh new distressed sales. There is no job loss recession uh, for 2016, so the only oh, the only areas where we see that are in oil states, where obviously yep. the commodity crash is impacted. Yeah, no question. Joe, we're here in uh, Austin, Texas. You, Andy, and I are here, and we're looking at housing supply. I don't think there's even that much supply. I mean, you can't find a house in certain areas, some of the more desirable areas. To, Of course, everyone say all of Austin is desirable, but some of the more desirable areas, it's really hard to find inventory. I want to toss the mic over to you, Joe. Well, uh, Logan, I want to ask about, um, number one, the Fed, and what do you expect out of the Fed and then, secondly, what do you uh, see for mortgage rates? Does that does the Fed action have an impact on mortgage rates, or just where do you see mortgage rates going? Uh, I, I have kept to a certain channel on the ten-year note since mid 2013, 1.60 to three 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 percent. I've not deviated from that channel, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the ten-year goes below one percent again this year. And uh, that has more to do with demographic deflationary factors, not the Fed per se. Uh, so I see mortgage rates being in a range of about 3.625 to 4.625 at the highest. Uh, inflation moves long-term rates, not the Fed. The 34 now going into the 35-year uh, cycle of lower rates is still intact. So uh, I, I, I don't see the Fed 
being a major player in terms of long-term rates, because I don't see them really raising rates too much higher unless core CPI inflation rises and the ECI wage index, which the Fed tracks. Those two things have to start going up higher for them to start raising rates and for long-term rates to follow with them. Yeah, and then uh, you know you talked some about uh, existing homes and and an inventory distressed uh, uh, sales not being there, but what do you see the builders doing, and and what do you see uh, for the new home sales market? Well, the new home sales market is very interesting. Uh, uh, last year was another year where people overhyped the builders again. Uh, new home sales are basically still at recessionary levels. So there's a pro and con to that. Because sales are so anemic, it limits the downside of new home sales. But if you look at adjusting the population, new home sales are basically where it was back in 1981 or the early 80s when interest rates were north of 14%. So it's a, it's, we're going to have to see where do the builders actually start losing profit margins in terms of uh, their prices to uh, stem sales to go higher. We saw a glimpse of that in the toll report, in the Lennar report, but still, because sales are so low, the builders have legs for starts, uh, single-family permits for uh, multifamily, and sales can grow, but it's just such a weak cycle. And primarily, the builders have been selling to uh, homes that are bigger to more strong middle-class uh, Americans with incomes. Mm-hmm. But now I think they're going to slowly start to retrench back to lower-priced homes, which will impact the medium sales price because the medium sales price didn't move much last year, uh, even though sales were uh, just slightly higher from the year before. And, and Logan, regarding that, uh, do you see, uh, you know, region by region, do you see much disparity from one region to the next, or are uh, things going to be pretty any, much in any state that had oil mining is going to get hit. We're already seeing the Houston data kind of slow down a little bit. Those areas are at risk because the rate of growth is going to be challenged at that point because so much of the economy was based on, on, on oil at a certain price. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else, slow and steady. If everybody just like five, six years ago just said the housing market was going to be slow and steady instead of overhyping it, there wouldn't be so much confusion on why uh, sales are not picking up. But uh, I, I think everywhere is going to be okay, but anything that has to do with oil and mining is going to have a, a demand hit this year. Well, hey, Logan, it's Andy. Thanks for being on the show. That's a great segue into what I was interested to hear more about, and uh, that being what will the oil crash mean to housing? So if you could expand on that a little bit more for us, please. I, I think it's just going to be segmented to a few states. Uh, oil, obviously, with lower gas prices, that's not a really good multiplier uh, impact for housing demand, you know, because it's not really disproportionately to the to the cost of housing. So, uh, you know, North Dakota, Texas, South Dakota, those areas will get impacted. We already see that in the data right now, Texas, North Dakota, South Dakota, where the economic output is less. Outside of that, the oil crash doesn't mean much to to other states, not economically or nothing in regards to housing. So the commodity crash is a negative for the oil states, but everywhere else it it actually is not that big of a data point to move anything in that regard. Well, now let me ask you if you could expand on one element of that for us real quickly, and that was something you said in the pre-show about 
levels of production. So that that wasn't initially what I wanted to ask you about, but as a, as a follow-up to the oil crash, uh, what, what has been the level of production decline, even though the prices dropped so dramatically? Well, the, the rig count has declined, but if you look at the rigs that are they're declining are, are the lowest producing rigs. So we're producing, you know, oil at still a high level. Uh, uh, that's that's not the problem. I think the price coming down so much, the the profits and the expansion goes away. So it's it's much different this this time around. You know, 20 years ago, OPEC would be cutting productions and and everybody would be working to keep uh, oil prices out. Everybody wants to produce as much oil and try to bankrupt each other because obviously those smaller players who are leveraged up to highly high yield debt are at risk of bankruptcy. We will see the bankruptcies come soon. So that's the difference between this cycle. We're not it's not like we're cutting production like crazy. We're still producing a lot of oil, but the the rate of growth in the industry is obviously cannot be maintained with prices at uh uh you know, in the low thirties. So uh, it's not like we're not, you know, drill, baby, drill anymore. We're just, you know, we're taking out the marginal lower producing uh, oil rigs offline, and then obviously the future production budgets are going to be much less because the price of oil is lower. But I wonder if this, uh, speaking specifically from the perspective of Texas, and I lived through the mid-'80s oil crash and housing crash, so if, if there's still some level of production going on, there's, although the – oil crash will affect housing in the oil-producing states. Will it be as dramatic as it has been in the past? No, bec- well, not really, because Texas is much different than it was, you know, in the early 1980s. You know, Dallas, Houston, everything, you know, they were so so focused on oil and oil demand that uh, uh, the, Texas has div- diversified themselves uh, much better than uh, than other oil states, so I I don't see a dramatic downfall in 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 Texas, but I do see a decline, but nothing like it was back in the 1980s, you know. Uh, so, um, if anybody used to watch Dallas back then, you know, we just we, we don't have any, we don't have the similar backdrop like we did, but definitely Texas will be hit. We're already seeing it in Houston, starts permits pricing, you know, but it's nothing to where it was like in the 1980s. For, for a 1980s type of effect, you generally need a grand general recession to create that kind of d- demand because you need breadth in unemployment claims to create a job loss recession. Right now, Texas is, is, is not like what it was back in the early 1980s. Well, that's, that's, that's great to know. And uh, speaking of JR and, and rich people, um, which, which, by the way, if you ever did watch the show Dallas and you saw uh, the Ewings leave their downtown office in Dallas and be at the ranch, and ten minutes later, you know that's fiction. That that ranch really does exist, but it's not ten minutes from downtown. Uh, so, but given all these Texas rich people, uh, what's going to happen to cash buyers? Are we going to have cash buyers in 2016? Well, cash buyers fell last year for the first time. Uh, it's been under 30 percent historically. Cash buyers have been 10 percent of the marketplace, and in this cycle, they've been uh, 30 percent and more for for a lot of years. A lot of that is due to the supply of distressed homes. This year, where we came down to 25 percent, which is historically uh, abnormally very high, but I don't see cash buyers completely going away. But I do see for the first time in this cycle, I think some of the NAR reports monthly will have a cash buyer under 20 percent. Uh, so that when that demand leaves, 
mortgage demand has to pick up to offset that demand and then then grow. You know, in 2014, I talked about possibly negative growth in sales for existing homes if cash buyers didn't stay the same or grow. We got that in 2014, uh, negative year-over-year growth. That is in play. It's a little bit different now because the, the cycle is a little bit older. But if cash buyers fall back down, uh, which they should, and then, you know, let's say rates went up higher than the normal and the mortgage demand is not there, we could have a negative existing home sales year over year, just because when you have such a big component of your marketplace cash and they're falling out, you, the mortgage demand not only has to offset that demand just to stay on par, but they have to grow even more. So you're going to need more and more mortgage buyers going out this year and a few more years to keep the pace of growth going. Okay, so to make all of that work and all fit together, obviously we have to have home sales. And so what's going to happen to inventory? Are we going to see a rise in inventory in 2016? This is the most unspoken story of this housing cycle and probably this century. Uh, People for years have talked about that there's no inventory out there, and that is a factual lie. There is more inventory from 2012 to 2015 nationally than it was from 1999 to 2005. But yet the demand was 1.5 million more each year back then. So what, what's the difference? It's simply demographic economics and people cannot afford housing. For years people are saying that there's not enough inventory, but this century there's only been one time uh, when inventory was over six months. It's actually from 2006 to 2011. That only happened through a recession and the housing bust. So Uh, One of the things I always talk about, I try to tell economists, professors, and everybody, if you look at the affordability metric for housing, that assumes everybody has a 20% down for their home. If you use that for inventory, that means an existing homeowner has to have at least 28 to 33% equity conservatively to sell their homes, pay their transaction costs, and move up. To me, that is the main reason why inventory didn't grow last year, even though home prices rose again. People don't have enough what I call a selling equity to basically wow. put for a down payment for further. So you, it, it, it's going to be really interesting this year to see what happens because we've had another level of price gains, but that necessarily doesn't mean inventory is going to grow higher. So I'm not well, in, into, into this inventory is keeping housing sales back because we have more inventory from 2012 to 2015 than we did from 1999 to 2005, and we, we have a lot less sales now. Well, I was going to kick it to Dave, but, you know, if I was listening to this on the podcast, which is what most people do, right there I'd pause, rewind, and play that segment that you just said one more time. That's huge. So important that people get that in their head. Thanks so much, Logan. No problem. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, I think I also look at that. In fact, I'm going to have you dwell on that just for a few more minutes because for those that are rewinding it, they're wanting to hear it again. But if you could say it from a standpoint – let me repeat what I thought I heard you say is inventory, housing inventory is really the issue. We're in a range where we're at, but there is, you know, define again what is the issue then. Say that again. I'm, I'm not even sure I can re-articulate it accurately. You know, you know what? This is, this is the untold story. You know, if you look at housing data from 1996 to 2007, demographics for housing ownership was great back then. You need a supply of people ages 28 to 42 uh, to have what, I, what I've always called as a strong demand curve. And, and for economics in general, our peak, you know, a prime age working force, ages 25 to 54, it peaked out in 2007. It's only growing up again. 
So a lot of these economists who are talking about 3% GDP, 4% 10-year, housing's in nirvana, everything's going to be – I could not – I don't, I don't even understand where they got that from. Where, where were these buyers going to come? So yeah. if you look at so existing it, homes... Yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought if there. You I have another question. Home, if, you, if, you, if you look at existing home sales, if you took out cash buyers, the extra cash buyers, and I'm not, not, not talking about all of them, but the, but the 10% above, the, the 20% above, existing home sales would basically be near the Great Recession levels. They wouldn't be that much higher. So we have inventory. We have plenty of inventory nationally to buy. So where are the buyers? You know, demographics is a part of the part of the problem. We don't have enough 28 to 42 year olds in the system to buy like we did from 1996 to 2007. A lot of people think that was just housing bubble years. That was all fake demand. Like to me, I, I the the lowest estimate and the highest really estimate, basically 13% to 33% of that demand was fake due to exotic loans. The rest was real. Demographic economics matter. It matters more now than ever, not just in the U.S., but entire the world. It does not get the appreciation that it deserves because I think this is a headline sensational so, society. So, so is this an issue of an inventory of buyers rather than an inventory of homes for sale, then? Is that what you're saying? You never had the goods in the first place, which in my first article back in 2010 when I started writing, the main thesis was that this cycle will simply do not have enough qualified home buyers to have a real recovery once you take the cash buyers out. That has stayed true just seven years. It's going into eight years because people didn't really fully understand what housing economics revolves around. You cannot have a strong housing cumbered if you're encumbered, which means that you've had seven to 10 million people. Gen, Gen X got basically destroyed in the last housing cycle. Okay, you had you you have too many people that had to short sale their house to foreclose their house. You had too much debt in the system to for people to move up, and then you had a very small demographic push, which is you know ages 28 to 42 in the system to buy. Everything you had for a strong housing demand curve was against you. It's not inventory. It's not tight lending. It's the basic core fundamentals of what a housing demand cycle demand. is, and we never had it. Uh, now, years 2020 to 2024, it should be much better because we're just going to have a more supply of college-educated, dual-income families having kids again. But that's not this cycle. So, so all these people for years who are talking about housing is strong, housing is strong, they, it just never made sense, at least to me, and I think to, to, for some other people. That, Where are these buyers going to come from? That makes a lot of sense. So uh, I guess will the first-time home buyer come back? The answer is yes, but it's when will the first-time home buyer come back? And you're saying you're, we're not going to really see that demand, that part of the demand side of this equation really come in uh, to play until for another until four the next, years? Yeah, until, until, until the next second. Because if you, if you look at uh, economics for first-time home buyers. We we have the highest percentage of ages 25 and 34 still living with their parents. These people yep. have to rent first. They have to date. They have to be able to carry a relationship, get married, and have kids. We are so far away from that becoming anything what we would look at to a normal first-time homebuyer uh, percentage of 40%. We're still years away. Finally, I think Great this is point. starting to kick in. It's, it's starting to kick in because I remember last year people saying, oh, there's a 3% down Freddie Fannie loan, first-time homebuyers are going to come back, rates are low, like economics. No, it didn't happen. Okay, well, this there's, explains there's, why I have you always – this always explains why I have you back on here because I just love the perspective you bring. It's not something that we have heard 
uh, talked about, but it's excellent, really good commentary about this. I have one last question. We're running out of time. It just cracks me up how fast this time goes. But are you seeing TRID delays? Uh, and if so, how long are you seeing the the TRID trauma um, delay transactions uh, in your you market know, the, and, and specifically I, in the loans you're working on? Yeah, I actually I actually wrote an article about this, that TRID was going to delay uh, sales. Now, he, the best way to explain TRID is this. There's naturally 20 to 23 business days to close the loan. Okay, we're in November, December timeframe, so you got some holidays in there. If TRID delays even three to seven days of any transaction, it's going to be posted to the next month. That's why right. we saw a huge, huge, absolutely jump down on existing home yeah. sales. And we, we should get some of that back. But as long as there's three to seven days, business day delays due to TRID, there's going to be a delay in sales. There's just this is the so, simple laws of math. You only yeah. have so many business days to close a loan, and that's what I think. And I think we already had the worst month we're ever going to see. The first month would naturally would have been you software glitches, people getting used to it, you know. That's, yep. But we sh- if it doesn't get any better, six more months out, which I think after six months everybody should be kind of on page. That's what I'm going to Then we might that's see my next the FPB, yeah, get involved a little bit more. But for now, yeah. you know, the worst is probably done off the monthly sales. It should be a little bit better, but you should expect them to wait yeah, for a few more months. We're still hearing about it. Everywhere I speak, everywhere I go, I'm still hearing about TRID, and it's just creating so much trauma out there. Logan Motoshami, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be here with us. Really good perspective. Can't wait to have you back. We're going to have you back a number of times throughout the year, just giving us an update on what you're seeing. I love the fact, folks, that someone who is a loan originator out there, he's an owner in his family business, yes. He has made such a study of the industry and of economic data and now is on national television, getting in massive press, and we're just honored to have you here. So kudos to you for the job and the vigilance you are and the perspective you bring to our listeners and, of course, what you're doing across the country by alerting people to the real issues that are out there. Appreciate it so much, Logan. Thank you very much. It's good to have you here, friend. All right, let's look at take a quick look at the markets as we look at this. Joe Farr, looks like we're back to uh, you know pretty much a neutral yeah, where we started the day. You want to give a quick update on the markets? Yeah, we're we're back to uh, where we ended ended the day on Friday, and and that's about six thirty seconds above some morning pricing levels, and so you know there's a good chance that uh, we'll see some some of the more aggressively priced uh, investors come out with. An improved price here anytime soon. Anytime uh, soon. Yeah, anytime soon. Should be soon today. We'll see where where it ends up. Joe and Andy, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Also, thank you to all of you who have taken the time to dial in and listen to us chat away. I love having Logan on here and all the dialogue. Many of you write and say it is just so interesting. Thank you for the encouragement you've given us. We wish everyone a great start to the new year and encourage you to come back and tell others about this podcast. Next week, we got, we're got going to have on the podcast, we have Mike Frattentoni, the chief economist for the NBA, coming on, giving us an update. And then the week after that, we're finishing up this series of podcasts about the economy forecast, what we have to look forward to with Les Parker. He's going to put a bow on the whole package, so it'll be really fun. Good to have you with us, everybody. Have a great week, and uh, don't let Trid traumatize you too much. Get out, get ahead of it. Looking forward to hearing all your stories. Come back and talk to us. Also, send us suggestions. Email me at Dave at Lickens, Dave, no, it's Dave David at TMS dash TMS dash advisors dot com. 
Oh, my gosh. Got to go catch a flight. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you soon. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening. 